Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, it's time for another round of How Well Do You Know Your Co-Host? I know my co-host pretty well. I'm not afraid of this. Okay, here's a question. What (laughs) is my favorite podcast in the world besides ours? Um, It's the one with Guy Raz. Um, Not the kids show, uh, but the one about making money. Um, You mean How I Built This? How how I Built This. No, no. <laughs> no, that's that's probably number two for you. It's the one about politics. Um, it's um, uh, Know Your Enemy. You really do pay attention to mm-hmm. me. Yeah, yeah. That's what why I wear headphones when we record, Jennifer, because I'm listening. Well, there's a reason that I forced you to play another round of How Well Do You Know Your Co-Host. We have a special treat for our listeners today. We're doing something completely different. Not that long ago, the one of the co-hosts of Know Your Enemy, Matt Sitman, reached out to me and asked if I would be interested in joining him and his co-host, Sam Adler-Bell, on the, on the pod to talk about education. Jack, I think you can probably imagine my reaction. Your reaction was, I refuse to do this without Jack. That's really (laughs) messed up that you guys would invite me and not him, is what I'm assuming your reaction was. Your name never came up. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, all right. Well, you and Guy Raz comes calling. We'll see if, uh, if I bring you along. So we recorded an episode, and they very generously said that we could release it under our quote-unquote brand as well. And so that's <laughs> that's what we're going to do today. We're doing something completely different. You're going to hear one of us, that would be me, mm. on another podcast talking about education. And just a little background on what Know Your Enemy is. Sam and Matt started it because they felt like we really needed to understand where the kind of rising tide of illiberalism on the right comes from. They're both historians and deeply knowledgeable about sort of ideas of the right. And I feel like that sort of information is just essential to help us understand what's happening right now in terms of the wars that are flaring up around public education. And I will, uh, I guess, like work on a playlist or something to uh, to post to Spotify if people want to spend some time with me. That's I, I have no role here. Jennifer Berkshire, welcome to Know Your Enemy. Thanks so much for having me. This is just, I can't even tell you how excited I am. (laughs) (laughs) Us too. I know, thats uh, it's so funny to hear that because uh, Sam and I were talking on the phone this morning and we were really excited to have you on. We've been reading in preparation for this episode some of your excellent writing on the rights attacks on public schools, on public education, along with the flare-ups around critical race theory, pandemic-related issues. You've really been doing fantastic work, and we really wanted to have an episode on this topic, on public education, the rights assaults on it. Hopefully you can take us sort of beyond the headlines and help us figure out where it's all going. I'm so glad to hear you say that because, you know, I am just... 
I would say almost a fanatical know your enemy listener. (laughs) And so I so often think that everything you're talking about is so relevant to what's happening right now with the wars over public education. I'm primarily focused on K-12, but it's also so much the case with public higher ed. And then, you know, I keep waiting and waiting. When are they going to talk about education? When are they going to talk about education? And then before I know it. Here you are. Well, I have a question to get us started. In November, right after the Virginia election, you wrote a great piece for The Nation titled, Corporate Democrat Goes Down to Defeat in Virginia, dot, 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 is a headline you didn't see last week, but it contains more truth than all the scaremongering over critical race theory. And one of the things that stood out to me in that piece is that, especially being on Twitter, you know, where so much attention is focused on messaging, and like, was it a faux pas for McAuliffe to say, well, actually, you know, parents shouldn't dictate curriculum or parents shouldn't have a total say in, you know, how their kids are educated. That blew up. You know, we, there was a lot of talk of critical race theory. You had people like Chris Rufo, you know, basically taking credit for Youngkin's win. The right was really riding high. But you make this point that actually one reason it played out the way it did is that McAuliffe was totally boxed in on the education issue because he had basically went all in on getting Amazon into Virginia As part of that ploy, you know, getting the chamber, Virginia Chamber of Commerce to basically write, you know, his education policy. And so when it really became salient in the election and some of these flare ups happened, he couldn't really create a contrast because he had basically done the Chamber of Commerce's bidding. His plans weren't that different than Youngkin's. Youngkin was running on, you know, increasing education funding. And so it turns out that like this kind of long-term trend in the Democratic Party or the kind of moves that McAuliffe had been making for years, it wasn't just CRT. It wasn't even just the pandemic. It was that he couldn't talk credibly about public education in a certain way and really draw a contrast. I'm so glad that you asked about that because I was sort of obsessively following along during this gubernatorial race in Virginia. And there were a couple things that stood out to me as just really odd. And one was that, as you mentioned, when you actually looked at what the two candidates, McAuliffe and Youngkin, were proposing for education, there was a lot of overlap, right? So you would think like, here's this issue that's supposedly this hot button issue, and yet Youngkin's basically proposing all the same things that McAuliffe wanted, which is to, you know, he wanted more school spending, but an expansion of career and technical education. And then the thing that I thought was so odd was that this enormous win for Amazon, which was really like, you know, like the biggest economic prize in Virginia's history. How is it possible that this never comes up? on the campaign trail at a time when, you know, we know, we hear, you know, like folks on the right railing against Amazon all the time as a kind of prime example. And I I just realized that I... <laughs> no I, pun that, intended. That's a little plan, no pun intended. A prime example of woke capital, right? So like, so shouldn't Yunkin have been tearing in to McAuliffe about, you know, like the, the Amazon deal? And he's just made some vague statements about how he would have gotten a better deal for Virginia. But at the very center of this deal was that McAuliffe and his economic team basically offered up Amazon the schools right. that they they pledged to plow an enormous amount of money into technical education and you know computer training so that Amazon could have the future workforce uh-huh. that it wants. Yeah. And so you think that like if you're listening to the debate taking place at say the National Conservative 
conference. Like <laughs> this kind of deal should have been what they were railing about on the mm-hmm. stage. Mm-hmm. And yet it never came up. Not a single time. And so when I heard McAuliffe make that statement about parents, what I hear is him saying, well, of course we don't let parents shape the curriculum at schools. That's up to the business community. (laughs) If you go back and you look at the role that the Chamber of Commerce played in Virginia, McAuliffe comes into office and they basically lay out the plan. Here's what it's going to look like. Here's what we're expecting the schools to do. And here's what you're going to deliver for us. And they have these extraordinarily detailed blueprints that never mention parents. Hmm. Um, And, you know, to the extent that, that parents come up, it's as, you know, sort of consumers, but of an education that's very prescribed for them. And then it just happened that I knew from my podcast that parents, there was a group of parents who were really unhappy in Virginia about the extent to which corporations are now driving what kids get taught. And of course, that's not what Yunkin is talking about at all. Right. So when I saw this sort of gaping hole, not just in what was playing out on the campaign trail, but in the coverage, I thought, you know, like, here's an example of how fake this is. Mm. Here's an example of how the critical race theory is basically the furor over that is just being used to hide uh, an agenda that, you know, basically both candidates agree on. Right. And then, you know, that like that story made re- me really happy, but it got almost no attention. And so now <laughs> I just sort of pace around feeling like I'm possessed of a unique insight that, that the rest of the world has yet to catch up on. Well, it's it, it makes sense in a way that this way of thinking about what happened in Virginia didn't get the same amount of attention because it's precisely the purpose of the CRT panic to conceal the actual material stakes of our political disagreements. I mean, really, for the, the liberal media side of the ledger, too, there was a basically acquiescence to the narrative that, yes, uh, he lost the election because the CRT thing was so unpopular and because of school closures was so unpopular. And there's no space to be like, well, actually, Democrats made their bed in a way by having spent years and years giving up on public education, giving over its whole raison d'etre to corporations. And as you have written in a great headline for uh, The Baffler a few years ago, the privatization agenda allowed education reform to really eat the Democratic Party. And so I'm, I guess it's it's disappointing, but not surprising that this counter narrative that you're trying to put out there doesn't get the same amount of attention. Well, Sam, it happens that just last night I was pouring over your recent piece, uh, the piece you wrote for the forum about CRT. And you had this paragraph that that I thought was just so smart about sort of how, you know, there there's more at stake here than just what kids are taught about, about race, yes. et cetera. That also, you know, what the right is trying to do is basically make the case that you know, there's no structure to be blamed and shift all the burden back onto individuals. Yeah. And I'm nodding along because I'm thinking that's a really smart description, but it also feels so deeply familiar to me because isn't that also what a certain kind of democratic education reform has tried to do mm. to to lodge all of that responsibility in the schools. We don't need redistribution. We don't need higher taxes on billionaires. In fact, billionaires are the saviors of our movement, <laughs> right. right? What we need, we need these technocratic solutions. We need more charter schools. We need to change the management structure 
of schools. We need to tether the mission of schools ever more tightly to the needs of employers. Right. Because I've wondered so much, like, why are these prominent education reform groups so silent on a lot of this stuff? Like, I can think of only a handful of groups that have really spoken out about, you know, the tremendous, I mean, these incredible education gag orders that are just sweeping the country. And and when I read that paragraph, it made so much sense to me that the missions are in some ways highly aligned. Hmm. Yeah. Jennifer, it's so interesting you point that out because one of the things that kept occurring to me, some of the state level bills about, you know, giving parents the right to, well, the language of opting out, right? Pulling your kids out of not having them read this or that, you know, basically an a la carte curriculum. <laughs> it was like, you know, this is the language of consumerism and choice in a way. So I often use the analogy of people being encouraged to kind of throw off the chains and tyranny of their cable companies, right? Uh-huh. And just, you know, <laughs> like go a la carte, stream whatever you want. And you'll actually hear the proponents of this vision, people like Betsy DeVos and Jeb Bush, you know, who who just, they're all in for this particular vision of empowering parents to make these individual choices. And I think that's where things get a little bit weird. So if you pay attention to Christopher Rufo's vision for what should happen next, because he's been really quite deliberate about laying out, here's what we're going to do next. Right. And he's the, just for the listeners, he's the sort of policy entrepreneur who's pushing the CRT bans, who kind of brought attention to it in the first place. Vision 2.0 is more directed at the dismantling of public education. Yes, yes. And so they're all in on what they refer to as education freedom accounts. And this is actually a really old idea. It, it dates all the way back to Reagan's first term. This was a Bill Bennett project. Hmm. And so the idea is that parents could take some portion of the public funding, the money that comes from the state, and they could spend it however they want. You know, we tend to call it a voucher and we think of it as, oh, they're going to take the money and go to a private school. But this is actually much more expansive than that. They can use the money for any kind of quote unquote learning option. Prager University. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, It's all a grift, isn't it? The grift is strong. And so one of the reasons that Rufo and his squad are enamored of this is that they think it's a great way to get parents out of the public system, but also the accredited private system. Mm. That they are very unhappy about the fact that if your voucher program forces kids to attend private schools that are accredited, the accreditation institutions are the ones that are enforcing the kind of woke ideology within Mm. private schools. So they see this as too, that's not what we want. Now, what, what kind of schools are unaccredited? Uh, Those would be the ones in the strip malls. Those are the ones where the grift is strong. Those are the ones where basically anyone can teach you anything. And so the push on the libertarian right is always to deregulate as much as possible, whether it's homeschooling, whether it's um, what they're now calling micro schooling. It's a 
big trend that's emerged post-pandemic. It's kind of the Uber equivalent of a school (laughs) where, say, like Sam wants to make a little extra money. And so he sets up a micro school in his house. He doesn't have to be a trained teacher. Kids come over. I teach them podcasting. (laughs) Right. Well, you don't have to teach them anything because the program is online. Ah. Right. They're just going to sit at computers. You're there to kind of babysit them. God, this is so it's so like, you know how the right when the right complains about neoliberalism, they they, they say, like, eat the bugs and you'll be happy kind of thing. <laughs> but like, this is so exactly that. It's like, go to this shit school with no accreditation where your kids aren't going to learn anything in a strip mall where Sam is just on a computer in Brooklyn hardly paying any attention uh, and be happy. And and think of that as like the fulfillment of your civilizational battle and have us pay for it. Yeah, I mean that that's that's exactly it. And to hold this up as an innovation. Right. And it's really been it's been just amazing to me to see how many states are really embracing this in the wake of the pandemic. So New Hampshire, which is, you know, just the next state up from me, has really gone all in. You know, they're mm. they're they they're wild for the micro schools. And part of it is that New Hampshire is in the throes of this, you know, kind of libertarian revolution. <laughs> the free state project. All the libertarians move to New Hampshire and then they can all vote for either secession or, you know, their libertarian paradise, which includes these shitty schools. Right, because what they want most of all is not to have their tax dollars go to schools. Right. And so they see the, you know, the micro school isn't it, you know, it's, it represents so many different wins for them. The fact that it doesn't use licensed teachers, there are no unions, right? They're, right. they're organizing is difficult for all the exact reasons why it's difficult for Uber. <laughs> Live free, die dumb. <laughs> <laughs> and then somebody, you know, somebody profits all along the way. And that's where you come back again and, and again to the, how, just how strong the grift is. Yes. Well, can I ask something here? Cause this is getting to an interesting tension to me. As you, as you know, from reading that CRT piece that I wrote for the, for the forum, I think that Rufo has always, has not abandoned his libertarian roots. Like he, his project is still totally coterminous with the goal of stigmatizing welfare, stigmatizing the means the state might have to correct inequities across race, but I think also just in general, the persistence of inequality. It, it's, it's a project of naturalizing the persistence of inequality in every dimension here too, right? Because like, what's nationalist or populist about privatizing schools and making it so everybody just pays for the education they can afford and rich people get a good one and poor people get a bad one? You know, that that doesn't sound exactly like the the populist Trumpist message. They're a workers party now. (laughs) Yeah, like doesn't sound exactly like the workers party. Every time I read, you know, another essay about national conservatism and they start, you know, they refer to the the common good, feels like it always has an asterisk next to it, which is, you know, we're excluding public education from that. (laughs) And for, for all the talk about somehow, you know, the libertarians and the new right, you know, they've broken up, they're not seeing each other anymore. Well, Libertarianism is as ascendant in right. in public education as it has been since you know Milton Friedman first started, right? right? Like like they are closer to realizing that vision of both universal vouchers and the idea of letting parents spend the money on whatever they want than they really ever have been before. And also, there's a contradiction here too, which I think Jennifer, you'll be helpful at teasing out. Which is, 
isn't the condition of wanting to use the education system to create a kind of collective national identity, to try to train students to be certain kinds of citizens, isn't the condition of that like a functional public education system, not this totally boulderized, atomized system where every parent is paying for their kid to get whatever education is available at the local strip mall. Isn't this another place where there's a contradiction between the supposedly kind of nationalist, American identitarian, kind of coherent project of the new nationalists and what is ultimately the payout of Rufo's anti-CRT project, which is increasingly looking, as you've noted, precisely like the privatization agenda of the right for decades? You're absolutely right. There's this sort of contradictory argument being made on the new right that on the one hand, they're going to use the state to enforce a particular vision of morality. And you really feel that happening yes. strongly right now in the states, yes. right? So that it's mm -hmm. not just the anti-CRT laws. But now in Florida, there's one hurtling towards DeSantis's desk called the Don't Say Gay Bill. <laughs> And basically right. the idea is that not only will schools not be able to talk about LGBTQ issues, but, you know, parents can sue schools if they feel like these issues are raised inappropriately. If my sister's wife comes into her classroom where she teaches, they can be sued. Exactly. Or little Sam comes home and he's he announces that he's interested in little Matt. And then <laughs> Sam's parents decide, well, you know what, we're going to sue the school. And so here, you know, you have on this one front that you have this intense coalescing around using the embracing the idea that you can use the state to enforce a particular morality. But then you have this completely other thing where they're saying, OK, education, freedom, yeah. any choice a parent makes is good. Right. Uh -huh. Right. That's literally how they define <laughs> right, it. And right, the, right. And the the written into all these state laws about education freedom is that there's no oversight by design. You don't need any oversight because the parents are the regulators. Right. And so you end up with this really weird situation where in a state like Florida, which is really a mecca for all of this stuff, mm -hmm. something like a third of the private religious schools that get state voucher money teach these kind of radical fundamentalist curriculum that mm -hmm. are also really anti-Catholic. Wow. Right, right? Wow. because they're, you know, like hostile to the Pope. Right. Yeah. And so sometimes I wonder, like, do these people have any idea what's actually... <laughs> so if, if you're somebody who wants to just start a school, the easiest thing for you to do is to get one of these instant curriculums. And chances yeah. are, you know, there's a strong religious component to all this stuff. Uh -huh. And so that's what you end up with. You end right. up with a Bob Jones curriculum. A Pensacola Christian College. Pensacola Christian College. Exactly. So some of our listeners, I know we have some listeners who were homeschooled. Sarah Jones, a uh, frequent guest, I, I think experienced some of this. It's true that because so many kind of fundamentalist Protestants were involved in the homeschool movement, school choice has always been a big issue on the religious right, you know, really predating abortion even in terms of the rise of the religious right. But like Pensacola's curriculum, which is, I think it's called Abeka. That's a big one. And it's in an incredible number of schools. And it's something that... It's wild stuff. It's wild stuff. And if you actually you get your hands on a copy of what they're teaching, there's a strong right-wing element in it too, right? Like the goal is to sort of get kids to think that social security is bad. It's sort of, <laughs> it's very much frozen in time 
from the early resistance to the New Deal. Uh-huh. Right. And then there's the stuff about, you know, sort of like slaves were happy. Yes, sure. Um, and, but then I was really surprised by the anti-Catholic stuff. And I, I just, I, I don't think people, like, show yeah. that to your integralist <laughs> That's exactly uh-huh. right. You know, and this is this is a just a quick point, I, because I, I you mentioned it in, in our email exchange, but the real the real illiberal states like for example Orban's Hungary they're banning homeschool right cuz they can't let the, the the population of Hungary relatively secular folks go teach their kids without the fully nationalist christian message that they want them to to build the future you know hungarian nationalist christian democracy that, it's so true. And I keep waiting for somebody to point that out, right? Because it's only been a couple of years since they passed this very controversial education law. There's a lot of attention paid to the anti-LGBTQ stuff in Hungary. Yes. But basically, they crack down on homeschooling and any kind of alternative schooling. It does seem kind of contradictory, or I, I get the tension between you know the libertarian impulse to dismantle public education and the more nationalist or other impulses on the right, the instinct to use public education to basically make sure students are not learning certain ideas, especially maybe more progressive-minded ideas when it comes to race or gender or sexuality, those kinds of things. But I, I think it's worth noting that that is kind of neoliberalism, right? I mean, we know neoliberalism is not just like repealing the state, getting rid of it, but actually using the state, using the regulatory arm of the state to achieve certain ends that are maybe in theory more supportive of quote unquote freedom that have, you know, a certain uh, vision of society as their end. I mean, that kind of tension, which isn't to say necessarily a contradiction, is I think right at the heart of neoliberalism. And it's why I think we can point to this, especially as a conservative right-wing phenomenon, but not only that. I mean, we were, you know, began by talking about the way this has infected the Democratic Party too in certain right. ways. Absolutely. That's how I started writing about this stuff. I started writing about education at really like the peak of the Obama education reform movement, where they had just this incredibly fervent devotion to the idea that not just can schools overcome poverty and you earn what you learn, as as Bill Clinton liked to say, but that if you wedded that vision to very specific technocratic solutions, you know, we were going to regain our stature in the world. Right. That This was going to be the key to economic competition. And so it was because of that that I got interested in the right-wing origin of a lot of these ideas, because you could always find some sort of pure form of the vision and the you know the democrats so naively seem to think that history ended with the charter school right that like we all got along but there was bipartisan agreement and all we needed to do was weaken unions for the right reason and then you know kids would achieve at at high levels all we had to do was you know kick the teachers in the teeth (laughs) yeah all we had to do and that you know like we all agreed on that and so not only did they end up kind of normalizing an extreme language but they yoked the vision of public education to kind of a shrunken idea that turns out to be very unpopular. And so then when the right comes along and, you know, has a very different idea of what to do with that authority, mm-hmm. you see that they're they're kind of flailing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, maybe this is a good opportunity to, uh, as is our one, I know your enemy, to talk about some of the relevant history. We started by talking about your uh, nation piece that was published uh, in November. In December, you published a piece with the New Republic that carried this headline, the GOP has revived its obsession with parents' rights. And you really take us back to John Gans will appreciate this, to the 90s. I mean, it goes back even further, right? You can look at Milton Friedman talking about school choice as early as the 1950s. Um, in your book, you mentioned the 1983 report. A Nation at yeah, Risk. A Nation at Risk, right? <laughs> that was put out by Reagan's education department. You talk about how a lot of conservative groups coalesced around the banner of parental rights. It made it into the GOP's contract with America, which was the Newt Gingrich led, you know, Republican takeover of Congress, especially the House in 1994. You mentioned Pat Buchanan launching his 1996 presidential bid in, well, New Hampshire, saying, I will shut down the U.S. Department of Education and parental right will prevail in our public schools again. So um, some of what we're seeing now has a real antecedent on the right in pretty recent political history. And one of the things I really found fascinating about this piece was it did fail, that this push failed as it went along, like the contradictions in it seemed to accumulate. It seemed it proved unpopular. They kind of you know pushed it too far and it ended up failing in a way. But now it's back. It might be back in slightly different versions, but they're, they definitely rhyme. And so I wonder if you could tell us about that first wave, that wave you write about in the 90s of parental rights, but also as you go along, like why it did fail. Well, the piece was inspired, at least in part, by listening to one of your episodes with John Gans <laughs> nice. about the paleos. It wasn't until I heard him, you know, really, you know, talking at length about Pat Buchanan that I went back and, and looked at that, one of those early speeches that he cited, and there it was, right, that, that parent rights was actually right there as part of that early vision that is now really shaping the Republican Party of the present. But, you know, it, it's gotten very little attention. We're, just like everything else, the, most of the reporting on parent rights treats it as though it's a brand new thing. Mm. So I went back and I was just, I was absolutely fascinated at what a similar story it was. To a certain extent, just like today, the parent revolt was real. Mm. You know, parents had specific complaints about things kids were being taught in school. So, for example, in New York, there was a major uprising against what was called a rainbow curriculum. Sounds dubious. Sounds dubious. <laughs> you know, kids are going to be reading books like Heather Has Two Mommies. And so you had really quite a diverse group of parents band together and force the withdrawal of this curriculum. In, in other places, it was more more sort of familiar targets. Lots of people very concerned about secular humanism, um, oh, yeah. which you may, you probably remember that from Rick Perlstein's book. Yeah. Very concerned about globalism. Um, mm -hmm. And then, you know, all these sort of odd things that I had never considered as, you know, something that parents would respond to. Activities that required kids to sort of self-reflect, like through a diary. <laughs> there was a, a controversial homework assignment in um, in New Hampshire where kids were supposed to write their own epitaph for their grave. Just, it's so similar to today where something would get held up as an example of how the schools had gone off the rails. Right. 
And then you would see these, you know, state level efforts to, in this case, to get this language that parents had the right to direct the education of their children, to get that language into every state constitution. And it was led by um, a group that was helmed by somebody you'll recognize her name, Betsy DeVos. <laughs> and I really did feel as I was researching, like I was just, I was in a time machine. Like, how is it possible that this exact thing happened and yet we have no memory of it? And here it is again. I think what was so surprising to me was that this movement that felt like it couldn't fail really did run out of steam. And it ran out of steam for a few reasons. Just as we're seeing the parent backlash today grow less popular as it starts to hone in on pulling particular books from libraries, uh-huh. say, yeah. right? Like, like it's one thing for people to be arguing in an abstract way that parents should have more say. Yeah. But it's another thing to say, okay, we're going to ban the Sherman Alexi book. Right. right. Like that, like that right. starts to make people uncomfortable. And then I think another key reason why the movement ran out of steam then was that the Republicans were still very hostile to the idea of litigation and trial lawyers. And you mm-hmm. probably remember, like this was the, this <laughs> was reform. the, this was tort reform. And they, they were very worried about too many lawsuits because the trial lawyers funded the Democrats. They right. were, yeah. they were the bogeymen just as the teachers unions would come to be. Yes. And so they really, they were very worried that enshrining this language into all these state constitutions would just set off a free for all of (laughs) of litigation. And so you fast forward to today and they don't believe that at all. Now they're, they're pro litigation to the point that a lot of the next wave of these anti-CRT laws doesn't just allow parents to sue school districts, schools, or individual teachers. It encourages it. Right. There's money involved. Right. They've attached stakes to it. And so I think the collision of priorities dragged down the movement for parent rights in the 90s, but the forces are realigned now in a way that I think makes it much more worrisome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the effort to get this language about parental rights into state constitutions. And I believe it was in Colorado, right, where there was actually a referendum to put it into the state constitution. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So they they tried to first work through the state houses. And again and again, it was a different moment in time. And so you would often have people who would, you know, they would come to defend this language about parent rights. And they would say things like, you know, I ought to be able to beat my kid with a belt. Oh, right. If, if I feel like it. So that, you know, that really turned people off. Because it could shield abusive parents. Actually, the language was so expansive. It was interesting that once they actually had to supply specific language themselves, you cite some of the polling that language about parental rights that once were polling you know, quite popularly, the decline was precipitous and these efforts mostly failed because the language was just so vague. It seemed like it could protect abusive parents. And once, once the specifics actually started to get hammered out, then it really lost popularity. That's exactly what happened. They decided to basically just, you know, put all their chips on the table and and bring a question to the ballot in Colorado. And the idea was that they, the parent rights folks would win there and then the movement would sweep the country. So what happened was that not only, you know, did suddenly people have information about what was happening in all these other states, 
But you had this unlikely coalition of, you know, you had the teachers unions, of course, but you also had video store owners and librarians who were worried that, you know, like, if little Sam brings an inappropriate video home, can I be sued? <laughs> and the and the parent rights people really, you know, they could say, oh, you're you're just, you know, you're exaggerating it. But that was the point, right? The point was to use this language in order to slow down cultural change. Right. And so the more the more that people understood the implications, the more they turned against it. And then what happened was that towards the end of the campaign, you had prominent Republicans in Colorado saying, this is going to be a disaster. You know, George Will wrote a column against it. He was <laughs> oh. very, he was very concerned about that. Like, do we really want people bringing all of their cultural grievances to the courthouse? And today, hmm. the answer, of course, is yes. Yes, <laughs> to the courthouse, to the front page of the Federalist, and on down. <laughs> I was thinking before that, like, there's clearly a way to tell the story of post-war conservatism purely through the lens of schooling race and class, right? Like, you know, Brown v. Board of Education is 1954, right? Then National Review is founded in 1955. The right battles over desegregation, over busing, wins an enormous amount, builds its movement on the basis of opposition to busing and forced integration of various kinds. And it's just kind of on and on and on. You can see the way in which public education, both as the site where a certain kind of American identity is cultivated and the site where the possibility of multiracial democracy is sort of on the table as the battle zone. So I guess maybe this is a huge question, but you know, if you were to begin to narrate the story that we've been telling on this podcast through the lens of fights over education, where would you start it? And, and could we start to do that right now? I would go back to post Brown v. Board in Virginia, where you have that just chilling moment in Nancy McLean's book, Democracy in yes. Chains, where the drivers of the libertarian vision, they realized that they're losing popular support when they make the argument for school privatization in terms of race, mm -hmm. and that instead they're going to use the language of choice and all the terminology that we're so familiar with today. And, you know, you even hear them using terms like innovation and in right. competition. And wow. so you start to see this language, this sort of, you know, archetypal neoliberal language being used to cloak a vision of, of racial separation. And then, you know, decade after decade after decade, we sort of watch that play out. So they literally like replaced the idea of massive resistance with the phrase school choice, right? Freedom of yeah. choice. Uh, you know, essentially they did. And it's really the language that they're using right now. For example, in one of the, the anti-CRT measures in Virginia, parents who are unhappy with, you know, their, their kids' schools, they feel that their kids are being uh, indoctrinated or there's too much anti-racist education. At a certain point, they have the option of pulling funding and attending a private institution, etc. And I was just struck by how similar that that is to the vision that was originally proposed mm. in Virginia, right? That in order to get around the demands of Brown v. Board, you would break up public schools and just, you would have a system where parents got to do whatever they wanted. Yes. Segregation academies and it happened right then. And uh, listeners, if you haven't listened to our episode with Marshall Steinbaum, we do get 
into a lot of that story and how the law and economics movement is so central to like providing that language and the legal rationale for school choice as a means of uh, privatization and also maintaining segregation. And I mean, I guess what we could go to from here is just it, it, it's interesting because we, we sort of pointed to the tension between the goal of using public education to define the confines of what who is an American, what American project consists of, and the and the privatization agenda. But it's really, I think that what you're pointing to is maybe the <laughs> where the contradiction begins and why it can never be really be resolved is that insofar as we are this multiracial democracy, public schools have to be the site where that project is possible. And if you are opposed to that project, then you are opposed to public schools, right? If you, if you have this prevailing discomfort with the idea of multiracial democracy, public education is going to be a problem for you. And privatization <laughs> is potentially constantly going to come up as the preference. And that's where I think that the Democrats, when you look back, they erred so badly here by settling on a definition of what schools do that's so desiccated, right? right by defining right. them solely in terms of, of workforce preparation. Yeah. Human capital. Human capital, but also that schools are the place where, you know, parents secure advantage, Yes. Right. And so now that the very idea that you just laid out is under assault, Democrats don't even have the language to make the case for, you know, the, the idea yeah. that schools should play that role. Right. They're yeah. still they're Terry McAuliffe up okay. there on the stage thinking, well, of course, of course, parents don't call the shots. That's for the business community. That's what Amazon does. That's yeah. what Amazon does. That's such a good point. You know, maybe this can help us drill down into some of your understanding of public opinion on these matters, because it it does strike me that, I mean, everything you're saying about the Democrats kind of conceding and conceding too much on these issues and now finding themselves with their backs against the wall. Saying to themselves, why did we like public education? <laughs> yeah. I forget. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. That's all true. But it, it, it does seem like issues surrounding public schools, it's also, if I can put it this way, understandable why they're so neurogic. Right. Mm -hmm. Like parents yeah. care about their kids. They want their kids to have the best chance in life. That language, you know, is reinforced by Democrats, too. When you talk about education solely in terms of like what kind of job your kid's going to get. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I just wondered the lay of the land when it comes to public education now versus even, you know, these disputes in the early 90s we mentioned. What's your sense of what really connects with parents? You know, there were, mm -hmm. there were arguments about CRT versus pandemic closings, for example, right? Mm -hmm. And so it feels like right now there's just like a stew of issues from, you know, the inflamed CRT discourse to real questions about how best to educate your children in this really difficult moment that we're, we're still in right now. You know, what's, what's, what's really activating parents? Is it the more headline-grabbing culture war flashpoints, or are there deeper concerns? Like, what's really going on? Well, I have a theory about this, and I have not heard anyone else make this argument, Perfect. which makes me think that I am either uniquely brilliant or maybe I'm wrong. So I'll be, I'll be very <laughs> curious to hear what you think, because I think what is so explosive about stuff, this stuff right now is that the Democrats have managed to assemble just an almost impossible coalition against them, right? That they have managed to ally not just the kind of conservative politics 
populists Mm -hmm. who are rebelling against anti-racist education in school for all the things that we hear about, right? That mm-hmm. that uh, equity is a Trojan horse for Marxism, et cetera. But they've also managed to piss off the parents who are absolutely desperate to get their kids into the Ivy League schools. Right. Right. And so if you go to Virginia, you'll hear people breaking down the election results in terms of very, you know, like some people think, oh, it's the school closures. Some people think, oh, it was CRT that did it. But if you paid attention to what Yunkin was actually talking about on the trail, he would make the, you know, he would tell the conservative base that George Soros was inserting operatives onto the school boards. <laughs> yeah. But then to the affluent suburban parents, he would pledge to get rid of the changes that had been made to the top magnet school in Virginia, right? That mm-hmm. they they basically, they won it in the interest of diversity. They got rid of a notoriously difficult test. They got rid yeah. of the admissions fee. And so he promised that he would, from now on, Thomas Jefferson School of Science and Technology would only consider merit. Right. Think about how different those two groups are. You have the people who feel looked down upon by the elites, yeah, and the elites who are desperate to hold on to whatever advantage they have, allied against the Democrats, right, right. And so I, I see this as like this is going to be a big problem. Think of all the like that the Supreme Court taking on the two challenges to affirmative action. Yep. Like what other cause brings together you know Tom Cotton who wants to tax endowments and set up apprentice programs, and you know parents who see admissions to the Ivy League as a matter of life and death. Right. And it all goes back to what we were talking about. It was this, you know, insistence by the Democrats that the only economic policy they needed was an education policy. Yes, yes, yes. And so they're really, they're reaping what they sowed. And I have no, part of the, I've been working on an op-ed about this, but I can't finish it because what the hell do you do? (laughs) Yeah. But we thought you were going to tell us, Jennifer. Uh, <laughs> shit. Uh, let's wrap it up. That is such a good point. I, I appreciate putting equal emphasis on the sort of nefarious race baiting agenda of the right and the the, the the bed that the Democrats have made for themselves yes. in terms of, for one, associating education primarily with this neoliberal consumable product, which is uh, useful only for what it will do for your kids, you know, earned income over a lifetime, and at the same time, abandoning all other kinds of redistribution economic policy. I mean, this is something we talked about in our our, uh, bonus episode with Jay Kang last week, but it's, you're so right that before the sort of like Bernie resurgence of, you know, straightforward welfare state policy making, the name of the game was, we will use schools and schools alone to solve inequality. And that was never going to work, but certainly not if you're embracing this neoliberalization agenda at the same time. And so, like, yeah, affirmative action is good, right? But if you only have policies in place to diversify the elite and no policies in place to actually rectify massive inequalities between classes, yeah, you basically only create the conditions for a combination of anti-elite and racist backlash. It, it's so true. And, you know, I co-authored with my co-author from the book, Jack Schneider. Um, we wrote a piece last year for The Nation 
crowing about what a big deal it was that the Biden administration was finally moving away from what we call educationism, the idea that education was the only fix for poverty that we needed. And of course, we pointed to the child tax credit. And we were warning that, you know, that Biden's economic policy was far more progressive than his education policy, that Mm. they were still using all the same language that Democrats have always used to talk about schools. And now you think about what's happened. The child tax credit is dead. The worst kind of educationist ideas are triumphant again. Absolutely. You know, Michael Bloomberg announces he's going to spend three quarters (sighs) of a billion dollars on more urban charter schools. The landscape has completely changed, but they're just, they're doubling down on all the kind of worst policies. Yeah. And they have no answer to that essential question, right? Yeah. So it's it is it's a it's a very bleak moment in that regard. Yeah. Maybe one way of putting it or one way of phrasing a question to you is when I first read your New Republic piece, you know, in which the GOP and right-wing forces were defeated in the 90s. <laughs> I said, "Okay, well maybe there's hope here." But if I'm hearing you, the landscape is quite different. One thing that's just so interesting is how much the landscape has changed around education reform, that one by one, all the kind of central tenets of the Obama vision have been pretty much completely discredited. So there's just this steady drip, drip, drip of studies. So there was one that came out a few, really, I think just a few weeks ago about how this just unbelievable billions dollars worth project to get every state to tie teacher evaluations to test scores produced absolutely nothing. Oh my God. Nothing at all, right? It, it sowed the seeds for mass teacher demoralization, but it did nothing. And you think about their kind of like the high flying charter schools that were really, you know, the Arne Duncan held up again and again. Success Academy. And they, you know, they've been like, you know, here's a founder who's going to be going to jail for wire fraud. <laughs> yeah. um, here, you know, like the, the shine is off. Totally. And so the fact that they're holding on to the same vision while the conditions on the ground have changed so much. And the big one is that the, the era of bipartisan citizenship is obviously over. Yeah. We did an episode and wrote an op-ed about how the there was really a, you know, kind of a treaty between Republicans and Democrats around schools in the 90s and that both sides gave up something to get something. So the Republicans put their dream of religious education on on hold and mm-hmm. the Democrats, you know, sort of weakened their fondness for teacher unions mm-hmm. and the big compromise was charter schools. Right. And so you look at the present And, you know, to the extent that school choice expanded post-pandemic, it was all in red states. Hmm. If you're like a Michael Bloomberg, whose dream is to expand urban charter schools, if you want to expand them in a blue city in a red state, it means that you have to ally yourself with the same politicians who are banning the discussion of race in schools. Right. So, you know, they're going to still try to make the case that charter schools are the civil rights issue of our time. But now they're doing it in a climate where, you know, the discussion of civil rights is being banned. So (laughs) how do you... So dark. And, I, you know, I hate to laugh, but sometimes, like, I just... I'm stunned by the obliviousness to all of this. Well, and this may be gets to uh, something, again, that we found our way to in our conversation with Jay last week. One of the things that is so 
striking to me about the discussion about learning loss and the the suffering of students under the shutdown <laughs> regime. And I'm using sort of scare quotes here. Um, not about learning loss, which is clearly real, but one of the things that's that's been so striking to me about it from the beginning was that when we became clear the remote learning thing was was going to cause uh, students to be set back, it was immediately described as an irrevocable problem. It was immediately like, these students will never be made whole, and we have to accept that, and so therefore we have to make decisions now to prevent it from happening more. There is no discussion from Democrats right now as an alternative to the doom and gloom of the right, the center right, and some of the center left now, about what's happened to schools over the course of the pandemic. There is no counter argument that's saying, yes, it's been a disaster. It's been a disaster for students. It's been a disaster for teachers. It's been a disaster for families. Everyone has suffered psychological traumas as a result of the pandemic and indeed as a result of the measures that we took uh, to try to control it, the necessary measures we took to try to control it. But here's what we're going to do. We are going to make all of them whole. We are going to massively reinvest in public education, in teachers, and we are and we are not going to give an inch to these people who are trying to demonize teachers who have had the worst fucking year, you know, never say that like this damage is irrevocable. We are going to repair this damage and it is going to be a project that is going to cohere our, our it's going to cohere all of our values and the coalitions that we are accountable to. And, and here we go. Yes, yes, we're in a crisis moment, but here's our vision. And you can even imagine Biden being like, God damn it, we're Americans. Right, you know, exactly. We're going to make everyone whole. You can't see me, but I was standing up, like <laughs> waving my arms as you were talking, because you're exactly right. Like instead of seizing the moment and making the case for closing what Gloria Ladson Billings calls the education debt, instead they've fallen into this trap where they're talking about, you know, like doomed workforce opportunities. And it's like, if your argument is that there's nothing that can be done, didn't you just undermine the case for school funding? Yeah. Like they don't see the danger of that at all. And then what like what drives me crazy is that because they have no larger stirring rhetorical case to make, you see these kind of zombie policies just, mm. you know, like roaring back to the fore. So you probably saw that front page story in the New York Times that Dana Goldstein wrote about how, you know, the answer to learning loss is virtual tutoring <laughs> with money being made. All yes. along the way. Instead of paying down the education debt, we're going to rent seek off the debt. <laughs> Nothing could be more neoliberal than that. that. That is exactly it. And that in the name of addressing learning loss, school you actually hear about schools that are stripping away the extras, the art, the library is closed because all the energy needs to be focused on, you know, closing this very particular gap defined in this very narrow way. So right. yes, I, I totally agree. It's a, it's an enormous lost opportunity. Yeah. But also, and you see them being played again and again by, you know, the Republicans on this front. The Republicans will make this kind of bold claim about, you know, the, the urgent importance of having schools open, even though they're arguing at the same time that the schools indoctrinate the kids. Right. Right. Uh -huh. It's such a typical Democrat move in the sense of not understanding how to use power to increase the possibility of gaining more power in the future. Like not seeing how certain concessions in one moment in time could cut your legs out from under you 
going forward. And with the Republicans and with the conservative forces, it seems like just the opposite. Even if they overplay their hand sometimes, you could see that like, okay, there was the CRT stuff. And then like the next phase is these transparency bills. Right. With teachers putting all their lesson plans online and giving you know, parents seemingly total access to anything a teacher might say to their kid in a classroom. Even some people have, you know, kind of joked, but not joked about like cameras in the classroom. Right. So it's you can kind of see how the right wing like their their appeals, their messages almost build on each other towards. I mean, one of the really harrowing aspects of your book, Jennifer, is that quote right at the in the preface or introduction where uh, Betsy DeVos says in 2018, we're done nibbling around the edges. And, and you can see why if that's what you're up against, of course, Bloomberg style school choice education politics is just not going to cut it. We're going to see a fascinating example of this play out in California in 2022, where there are very, it's very likely that there will be two different ballot questions. And Mm -hmm. one is the kind of pure Rufo education freedom vision, right? That we're just, we're done with this. We're done nibbling around the edges. We're going to just, the money's going to go to the parents and they can do whatever they want with it. Mm -hmm. And then the other is this kind of hyper technocratic, they want to basically enshrine standardized testing in the state constitution and use that to define what a good school is. But as part of the language, they rule out the possibility of additional funding, right? So it's exactly, you know, it's funded by billionaires. It's this very like people who are very hostile to any kind of redistribution and they clearly haven't thought through you know in the game of paper rock scissors when those (laughs) two things go against each other like are you gonna vote for the weird technocratic thing or are you just gonna go for the pure just give me the money right well, isn't that <laughs> isn't that just a story about the Democratic Party in the past uh, four decades? I mean, I don't know if this is hopeful or not, but one of the things, Jennifer, your piece for the nation, uh, again, I'll just say the headline, corporate Democrat goes down to defeat in Virginia, dot, 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 is a headline you didn't see last week. <laughs> again, published right after um, McAuliffe lost. But I take some comfort or possible comfort in the fact that, like, yes, Youngkin won. Yes, the critical race stuff was ugly. But maybe the problem with Democrats is they just didn't have to nominate a retread Clinton-era corporate mediocrity, right? Yeah. Like, like it, it's, it's not as if, you know, Democrats ran their great hope in Virginia, someone everyone was really excited about. And like young people were, you know, knocking on doors to volunteer for and all that, right? It was Terry McAuliffe that lost. And at least to me, it's like, well, he lost what Youngkin's going to do. It's already proving messy and ugly in certain ways. Pretty ugly, yeah. But it's not hopeless because maybe one problem is when we're talking about vision and offering a real alternative, just nominating better politicians <laughs> could re- rectify some of this. I know, I mean, that's a big ask in certain ways. I know it's not a, a small problem, but it is like, it was Terry McAuliffe who lost. Well, that's uh, what I'm going to say is I'm going to get the listeners to start the hashtag draft Jennifer Berkshire uh, <laughs> <Yes>. movement. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I I think you're absolutely right. He was he was just he was a terrible candidate. You know, it wasn't just the the infamous parents quote unquote gaffe or you know he he was a dud. But I think what is encouraging is that more and more you see kind of emergent candidates running as very sort of aggressively defending public education and the idea of a, of a public good, yeah. right? And the, the reason that they're doing that is that in more and more states, it's under existential threat, right? So right. They, they it makes absolutely no sense to run in a state like Missouri, for example, um, on a third way platform, right? Yeah. Like that, that would just be crazy. The problem is really at the elite level. And it's for all the reasons that Sam laid out in that great anti-CRT piece, that the resistance to any kind of redistributive policy remains so strong among the Democratic elites. And as long as that's the case, they will always be running on, you know, they'll have no vision for the schools other than as a fix for poverty. And that's just, that's hopeless right now. Race to the bottom. Yeah. Jennifer, in your book, you kind of lay out the four main principles of someone like Betsy DeVos's vision. And I was really struck by the first one is someone like her believes that education is a personal good, not a collective one. And I I feel like with education, as with so much during the pandemic, we're fighting to just name and describe public goods, that we live in a society, that we owe each other something, that, you know, it's not, it can't just be all individuals making their own calculations, whether that's about risk when it comes to getting COVID or whether it's individuals, you know, tabulating the eventual payoffs of their child's human capital when exposed to the right educational uh, conditions, right? That's what we're fighting for. And it seems like that's what this battle over public education comes down to. That first word, public. Can you imagine a more terrifying vision for the future of education in this country than do your own research? <laughs> yeah, uh, I hate That's to end point. on that note, but we might have to. It's a good point. It's a it's, it's an ominous point. warning. Well, the Have You Heard podcast that Jennifer does with Jack Schneider is so great. It's 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 this kind of conversation we've been having, um, completely in the realm of sort of public education, but public education f- from this robust defending it on its true principles uh, perspective. Um, I l- I listened to the um, episode you did on the attack on trans youth in schools. I thought that was fascinating. And uh, I definitely recommend, have you heard to our listeners? I I think of it kind of as, you know, we love our companion podcast, like five to four is a smarter version of Know Your Enemy about the Supreme Court. Uh, Have you heard is like a smarter version of Know Your Enemy about public education, you know? Exactly. Um, So we're really grateful that you came on our podcast. You were really terrific and your work is just superb. And uh, so we're we're not just uh, happy to have you on, but fans and that uh, made the conversation all the better. Wow, well thank you so much, I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Bye-bye. Bye.